I was smelling the thrill of victory. <laughs> uh, there are five points you need to score. I had already scored three, and I could feel I was going to score a fourth. And I thought, I can't believe this. This is so incredibly thrilling and exciting. But there was a corresponding factor. It was an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> Welcome to The Workplace, the podcast where we try to make the places we work, places we love to work. I'm Andrew Scarcella. Every episode, we'll be talking with a different expert about what makes great workplace cultures tick. A Navy fighter pilot, an HR analyst, a fashion icon, who knows? Will they have all the answers? Nope. But with each one, we'll get a little closer to figuring out what we can do to build workplace cultures where people are happy, healthy, and inspired to do the best work of their lives. This episode, we'll be talking with the one and only Tim Gunn about mentorship, leading with authenticity, fashion, and fencing. Fencing? Okay. Before he became a household name as the Emmy Award-winning host of Project Runway, Tim Gunn spent nearly 30 years mentoring and inspiring generations of students as a professor at the Parsons School of Design in New York City. His latest book is titled The Natty Professor, a masterclass on mentoring, motivating, and making it work. And it's absolutely packed with wit, wisdom, and insights, much like the man himself. Join us after the interview for The Takeaway, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us to our own workplace cultures to make them better. Tim Gunn was interviewed by Mindy Cox, the Senior Vice President of People and Great Work at O.C. Tanner and a fierce workplace culture advocate who was recently named HR Executive of the Year by Utah Business Magazine. Nice. Their conversation took place on the main stage at Influence Greatness 2018. So if it sounds like they're in a big auditorium in front of a huge audience, it's because they are. Mindy, welcome to the workplace. Thanks, Andrew. Fun to be here with you. Finally. Uh, (laughs) So I have to know, is Tim Gunn as suave and as sophisticated as he seems? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, what a pleasure to meet him and what kind of a surreal experience to have observed someone in the environments in which he gets to work, right? Very public, very, I don't know, such an exceptional experience that he's giving to to people he's trying to mentor in the field of fashion. Not in my arena at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to have the opportunity to sort of have our paths cross and learn of him, um, from a different perspective, from a, a human angle, it was just a treat. Yeah, he's uh, there's uh, there's more than meets the eye when it comes to Tim Gunn. A lot of people know him as the uh, benevolent but blunt mentor uh, in Project Runway, but he's been a mentor for a long, long time. Uh, you know, decades before the TV show was on, as a professor at a design school. Absolutely. It was a, it was eye-opening to me to learn more about his background and preparation for that experience and just to know that what we see as the manifestation of his career at this point is really just the culmination of so much um, passion for mentoring and for teaching and for design and for all of those things that, that can come together in an environment like a project runway or something that makes all of those um, ideas accessible to the public. 
Yeah, he's a teacher, not just a personality. Well, and a thoughtful teacher at that. I mean, he really he really knew what he was about, and he had done some thinking about uh, giving his ideas some clarity, which I thought was terribly fascinating. I mean, you think some of these big personalities are just kind of out there winging it, doing their thing, and perhaps some of them are, but Tim was very thoughtful and um, knew what he was about and what what it is he was trying to accomplish with the people he was working with. Hmm. So how did you prepare to interview Tim Gunn? Well, you can imagine that um, receiving the assignment or the joy or the, the, gift. the gift of uh, having that experience, I was thinking, what what do I need to do to be ready? And, of course, uh, reading his book and researching a little bit about his career and getting to know him as a mentor and as a teacher uh, far before he became a public figure um, was, was very interesting. But, of course, as a person and as somebody who knows I'm going to be on stage with somebody who routinely criticizes fashion for a living, I'm just thinking, he better take me shopping before we have this experience together. And so in our prep call, I said to Tim, Tim, you know, we really do need to go shopping. I need a few hours of your time the day before because I, that's only fair, right? If I'm going to interview you, that, I, that I'm not embarrassed by what I show up in. And he had the most interesting response, and it has really, really stuck with me. Um, he said, Mindy, I would never presume to dress you until I knew you. And it was such a great lesson in the fact that he wasn't really just about um, using someone as a mannequin or um, putting on you the expectations of a fashion culture. But he really wants people to feel comfortable in their own skin. And so whatever manifests your personality, whatever brings you a sense of confidence, uh, that's what that's what clothing is about for him. It's a vehicle to really access your personality. And I think as an HR professional, you know, when we hear phrases like that, there's so many metaphors and, and parallels that can be drawn. Sometimes we want people to perform a certain way in a job or we want to, you know, give them experiences that teaches them how to act in certain um, scenarios. And and all of that's well and good and, and in the name of development. But unless we know them first, unless we let them show up as their authentic selves, it's all just a facade. And so I think about that comment from Tim Gunn all the time. You know, as I recall, he was actually quite complimentary of your outfit. Well, wasn't that lucky? That was the the the, the rule of thirds, and somehow I had broken down the rule of thirds that day in a in an acceptable way. So that was oh, more than acceptable. <laughs> That's what he said, anyways. Well, I am super excited to hear this one. Maybe the best one of the season. Absolutely. All right, let's get to it. Please welcome to the stage Tim Gunn. Thank you, Mindy. So great. Thank you. Where do you want to sit? Um, I'll do here. Okay. Either, I told you I'd do How that. How fabulous do. does she look? <laughs> he has to say that. He totally, totally. I has don't to have say to say that. it. So, and I frequently don't. <laughs> we have heard that. We have heard that. I think it's so interesting, the many different projects that you move between. And I think there's so many actual leadership stories and, and relationship stories in the story that you, that you just shared with us. Um, what, do you think, what do you think life is trying to teach you right now through that experience? 
Well, I do believe, my mother hated it when I would say this, but I really do believe things happen for a reason. The reason, with some degree of frequency, is not revealed at the time that whatever happens, if it's a calamity or even if it's something that's sensational, um, it's frequently not revealed at the time, but later you figure it all out. Um, I have to, to, to share with you one of the worst, most painful emotionally painful experiences and also psychologically painful experiences I've ever had was when I was still in Washington, D.C., and I had fallen in love with a person and had been with that, with that person for nine years, and very abruptly, that person dumped me and said, I'm not interested, I don't want you anymore, you're out of my life. And I have never been as, so devastated, ever. And while we were still together, Parsons School of Design had called me and said, we've heard so much about what you've developed in terms of a design history curriculum. We know that you're known for being an excellent three-dimensional design instructor. We'd really like you to join us. And I said, no, I was very happy. I had a great job. I had someone I loved dearly. And this horrible thing happened. And about seven months later, Parsons called again and said, we want you to come. And I said, I'll be there in a nanosecond. <laughs> so it was at that moment I thought, this is why this happened. Yeah. Because if it hadn't, I'd still be in Washington. There you go. Yeah, you have yeah. to throw the dice. You do. You have to trust the universe yeah. for sure. So um, let's, let's jump to to your life at Parsons and all that you contributed there and the, the change that you brought there. And maybe even this relates to the Bravo story you just shared with us, but you talk, um, when, you, when you talk through your philosophies that you developed and fleshed out at Parsons, one of those with, was that teachers needed to be truth tellers. Well, it's a lot easier to just pander people and say, oh, you're doing a good job and carry on. It's a lot more challenging to really give individuals or groups an honest critique. And it's beneficial to that individual or that group to, to hear it. And I found out quickly through teaching that when you are, when you take your guard down and don't employ some empathy in your psyche, um, and by that I mean, think about what you want to say, literally want to say, run it through your head, not only the words, but the intonation, how would you react if someone were to say that to you? Mm -hmm. And I still do that, but, that's, but I learned how to do that because early in, in my teaching days, and this actually goes back to when I was teaching in Washington, my first five years were there, I found that if I was a blunt instrument, overly blunt, I was discredited. And it, it metaphorically, would be, be as though a garage door shut down between me and the student, and I didn't have a chance with that student anymore. So I thought there's got to be a better, tender, sincerely caring way of getting this message across. And also not just lobbing it in like a hand grenade and stepping back, but, all right, you've heard this. How do you respond to this? I mean, I love it when we're on the same, when we're on the same page. And asking can reveal that. Yes, I'm profoundly disappointed with what I've done here, and you, Tim, you see it also. Um, that's the best of all. Uh, doesn't happen all the time, but, but it happens with some degree of frequency. But that asking is so, so critical. Even in a setting like this, 
You and I could be here and we could start doing critiques of clothes and um, you could say, Mindy, for example, but look at that person in the back of the room who's dressed like a circus clown. And I said, well, let's ask. Maybe that person is a circus clown. <laughs> This you is know? true. This you don't, don't make assumptions, and right? I, exactly. Yes. I make no assumptions. So it's a very, this sort of approach requires a huge investment on my part or anyone who's assuming the, the kind of role that, that I, we have. It's really rewarding. It's really worth it. And you feel as though you've made a contribution. Um, and in some ways, that's a, a selfish reason, be, oh, I'm booing myself up. But it's really about the thrill of seeing what this individual can actually achieve once this individual gets over this barrier. Someone asked me a while ago, you, they, they said, you've taught for 29 years. What keeps you returning to the classroom? And, and similarly with Project Runway, mentor for 16 seasons. For me, there is no greater thrill no greater honor and no greater high than watching an individual have an epiphany about who he or she can be. Mm-hmm. And I, I get very totally emotional agree. about that. It's just watching them have that aha moment. Oh, good heavens, I see what I can do with this. It's just, I'm, I have chills right now, it electrifies me. Yeah, growth is an amazing thing to it watch. It is. It does require a relationship though, between yes. a leader and an employee, a, a, you know, teacher, a student. So what other critical aspects would you say are, are central to creating those relationships? Well, th- there, there is a very important corresponding factor which has to do with what, I'll just use the personal pronoun, but I'm investing in this student versus what the student's investing. And there are times that I will say, why do I feel that I'm investing more in your success than you are? And that can't be. That individual has to want it far more than I do and have a vision for where it can go that shouldn't even be in my vocabulary. So there are times when I start to pull back. I can't want this more than you do. And when I start to feel as though I'm putting more energy and um, investing more thought into this, I, I back away. Okay. It's your dis- these are your decisions to make. Well, but I, I believe that they're the individual's decisions to make anyway. I say this all the time on Project Runway. Look, we're having a conversation about where your work is at this moment. You're telling me where you want it to go. And I'm giving you feedback about all of it. You are responsible for your own decision making. I'm not. I'm not standing on the runway in front of the judges saying, well, these are the reasons why I did this. And the last thing I want anyone to say, and it's been said twice, and it's been kept in the show twice, the last thing I want anyone to say is, well, Tim Gunn told me to do that. I mean, well, Tim Gunn was clearly, well, I shouldn't even say (laughs) clearly wrong as much as, well, if I'm really a partner in this, I should have stayed at your workstation and helped you all the way through this project to the point that it actually appears on the runway. Mm-hmm. So in those situations, is it ever appropriate or have you ever had success painting a vision for, for potential for what somebody can become? And have you, is there a methodology to well, that? Well, t- there are times when, when I, I, I love your term, paint a vision. I wouldn't have, have described it that way. That where I try to get the designer or the student to see 
what I can see right. in terms of where this work can go, to, to, to extrapolate it, to, to move it forward months, years, decades to what it could actually be. I mean, you, you could be, looking at this work, you could be a, a designer who really advances the aesthetic values of gender-neutral dressing, for instance, or designing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I want them to get inspired and excited and motivated. But if those things don't work, I, I step back. I mean, the designer or student may take it on him or herself, but that's how it's going to happen. I, I, can't, I can't make the work for them. And I, and I don't want to make the work for them. I mean, it's the last thing I would ever want to do. Nor do I want to give them ideas. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting line that you have to sometimes sometimes draw yeah. there. When you arrived at Parsons, let's talk about just the, the, the strategy that you brought to that school. You said you found it as a, as a very task-oriented. Maybe you can describe the environment when you arrived at Parsons. Well, it was a completely different culture for me. I came from a small art school in Washington, D.C., which I loved, but it was a small art school in Washington, D.C. And suddenly I'm at the Grand Fromage in New York City. And the scale was so different in terms of students and faculty, due process. At Parsons, I could introduce a, a new course, write a syllabus, and it was put in place. But there were committees and, and layers of uh, evaluation. And I found it daunting. I found it really frustrating because I was used to something that was so loose and easy and, and it, it, you could put a course in the next semester as opposed to, well, maybe two years down the road. But I grew to greatly respect the process and I realized largely because of the scale, this more cumbersome process was really necessary. And no one was trying to slow anyone down as much as trying to ensure that the right things were happening and that, it, and, and that nothing was, was necessarily a standalone. It would interact with other courses in a similar category. It would be a, a partner to the rest of the students' experience within a department. It goes back to what I was saying about the epiphany. I saw so many students fight, fight, fight me and their advisors about, I don't want to take children's wear. Why are you making me do this? Because we want you to understand this aspect of the industry. It could impact other things that you do and because it's on the plate of food, <laughs> period. You're taking it. And then they come to you midterm and they say, I can't believe this. I love this experience and I'm really good at it. Thrilling. Thrilling to hear. And it would never have happened if they were picking and choosing their own courses, ever. I can sense some analogies that we might have as leaders in the preview that we offer employees of the holistic view of our organizations, how different disciplines interact and why they exist and what their expertise is. And sometimes, you know, you have people that say, I don't need onboarding or I don't need to go to this or I really don't need to interact with that group. But I, I'm appreciating what you're saying about making sure that that connection happens so that there's some insights that are unexpected. Exactly. You let those experiences and, happen. And it goes back to... Um, things happen for a reason. You may, you may think at the time, oh, this is really unimportant to me, and it's not advancing my own plot. And then you realize later, oh, all those intersections mm -hmm. are very valuable. They help, help me understand the, the culture better. 
So I'm just thinking back on your um, comment about um, coaching students through different life choices. What do you think is the best piece of advice you've ever been given or the best piece of advice you've ever given? I would always tell my students, you need to know who you are. And then I'd ask them, do you know who you are? All right, tell me, who are you? And then, of course, generally, they'd stumble and stammer. And I'd say, think about it. I'll come back in 10 minutes. I want to know who you are. And, and also, in the case of my students, who, how do you want the design world to perceive you? And I would just say to them, that's who you need to be. And when I would find students who were, for the most part, imitating things that already existed, I would say that to them. All right, I'm going to repeat. What makes you different from all these other people? Your own physical DNA is different, and your own personal experiences are different, so how do you infuse that into this work in order to take it to a place where you're creating your own niche as opposed to just imitating? And that was always, and still is my advice. You have to be true to you. This is why I also say to everyone, and, and, and especially to myself, and I've been saying this for decades, all of us, unless, it's, unless you're trying to not hurt someone, Never tell a lie, never make anything up, because then you have to remember it. <laughs> and that's, in my experience, that's deadly. What did I say? What did I do? How did I answer that question? Tell the truth, always. But Mindy, that triggered something. One second. Oh, having to do with who are you um, and, and designers. A dear, dear pal of mine is a, uh, the former, edit, former editor-in-chief of Vogue, um, Grace Mirabella. She was at Vogue for 39 years, the last 19 of which she was editor-in-chief. And I love and adore Grace. She then started Mirabella magazine. I would have Grace come in to talk to every new group of students in the fashion program. And after the second time, she knew what I wanted from her. As she put it, you want my Grace thing. I said, yeah, I want your Grace thing. So her Grace thing was the following. She would get the students very excited and inspired and say, the fashion industry needs you. We're always looking for fresh, fresh blood and fresh ideas, and we need to be stimulated. We can't just flatline it in, in terms of, of design work. It has to constantly be escalating and accelerating. And she would say, but I have two pieces of advice for each and every one of you, and it's the following. And she said it just like this. Don't make dumb clothes and don't make jokes. And they'd look at each other and ask, what's this old lady talking about? So she would explain. Dumb clothes. The world does not need you to design a t-shirt and a pair of cargo shorts. It's out there, it's been done, there are plenty of them. Stay away from it. Jokes. The things that you see on the runways in Paris during Couture Week. There floats in a parade. <laughs> and as Grace would, would explain, it's so easy to design a t-shirt. It is so easy to create a float in a parade. Everything in between, and it's a vast, vast landscape of things. Everything in between is really hard. How do you make beautiful, innovative, seductive clothes that aren't jokes? How do you do it? Those clothes that do make jokes 
I put into the category of trying too hard. How do you do it? And that's the challenge in fashion in general, but in particular in American fashion. And I, and I love that challenge. And, and we know that great work when we see yes. it, don't we? Because we all want it. You all want to be involved in, in, in that excellence that you well, can and, see. Well, and this is a story from many, many years ago, but, but it, it makes a point of, of sorts. Two of my students in my second class in the fashion program, because I was, I was the, the chair, but I also taught. I can't not teach. I had two... They were considered renegade students um, named Jack McCullough and Lazaro Hernandez. And they were renegades because they were always challenging the status quo, which I loved. I mean, as long as you have substance to back it up with, challenge the status quo. We should push, push, it, push those buttons. And they wanted to design collaboratively. This was their senior year. And I was completely and totally enthusiastic, designed collaboratively. Well, the faculty and the other sections of the course that I've taught went crazy. You can't let them do that. It's not fair. It's cheating. Wait a minute. Why is it cheating? They're responsible for twice the number of garments that an individual student would be responsible for. At any rate, I'm going to fast forward to the end of the fall semester when the muslin prototypes of what they were designing needed to be exhibited or walked on models. I saw this collection in muslin and, sorry, I'm getting emotional again. I, I, I rose from my seat and I just said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. Wow. And they're the Proenza schooler phenomenon. So the Barneys uh, bought the collection off the Parsons runway, the, the singer show. And I was so worried about them. I thought, this success is happening way too fast. But they're now fashion establishment. And that was now 2002. It was 16 years ago. Mm. So they've had incredible staying power. And I also said about that experience with Barney's buying the collection, this will never happen again or it'll happen once every decade. It happened at least, at least once every successive season that I was at Parsons. It was thrilling to see that happen and to know that the students were pushing themselves. We often, I mean, even in human history, when records are broken, we say, oh, that could never happen again. No one will ever go faster than that. So what is it about that example, do you think, that inspires? And how, how as mentors, can we provide that? I think it's the, oh, yes, you can, um, spirit. Uh, it's, it's in, in a way, it's the little engine that could. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And also, it, it, it's, it's, it's analogous to um, sports in many ways, especially long-distance running. You need someone to pace you. You need someone who's right there so that you're running even faster or right there and you're running to catch up with them. As opposed to you're the head of, head of the pack, you can go have a nice coffee and still get to the finish line in time. And I say that, I have to say to students who seem very, very motivated, have already demonstrated that they're very talented. I say this to them about where they should be studying art and design or fashion more particularly. I said, you need to be in a very competitive environment. You don't want to be at a school where you're the best student. You, you need people who push you and, and challenge you to do more, to um, tap into parts of yourself that you wouldn't tap into otherwise. Mm -hmm. 
and who make you surprise even yourself about what you can achieve. So it's okay for things to be hard. Yes. It's okay for, yes. They need to be. I mean, I make the, I, Mindy and I were talking backstage about the fact that I took up fencing about three and a half years ago at, at age 62. And I'm so invigorated and enthralled by it. And it's really, really hard. And if I leave a, a, a teaching session or a bouting session and I'm not completely drenched in sweat and I'm not, and my brain isn't running over time about the various plans that I had in my head about executing, because you have to go in with a plan. You can't just head off at the on-guard line thinking, well, we'll see what happens. That doesn't work. <laughs> um, if that doesn't happen, then I know I'm not pushing myself. It's no one else's fault, but those, I'm the oldest person at the fencing club by far, and those kids push me. They, they push grandpa. So, <laughs> can, can I push you to tell your victory story? Yes. <laughs> I, told, I told Mindy this was some degree of embarrassment. I have three fencing lessons a week, one-on-one with a, with a fencing coach, and I bout on Sunday afternoons. And bouting involves all of the students in the club who are there on the Sunday. You don't have to go. But, but those of us who were there, we bout each other. So everybody bouts everyone else, regardless of age or experience. So I lose every bout. I'm used to it. I go home and I'm depressed. At least I'm old enough to have a drink. Um, and I learn from it. I, I mean, I really do. But one Sunday, I was smelling the thrill of victory. Uh, there are five points you need to score. I had already scored three, and I could feel I was going to score a fourth. And I thought, I can't believe this. This is so incredibly thrilling and exciting. But there was a corresponding factor. It was an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> is that so great? <laughs> So I really seriously said to myself, oh, I need to throw the last point, and then she can get back into the running, and then I can just throw the whole thing to her. But the smell of victory overwhelmed me, and I got the point. But I did go to her mother. Her mother was, was at the club, and I went up to her mother afterwards and said, I'm so sorry. This adorable kid's name is Ariel. I said, I wanted to throw it so Ariel would win, but I said, I just couldn't help myself. I've never won. And her mother sort patted me on the shoulder and said, no, no, Ariel will survive. Yeah, so great. Eight-year-old girl. That's good. Score one for Tim. We like that. We score one for Tim. So you are, I mean, speaking of fencing and it being a very high-stress, environment very um, you have to know what you're going to do before you're, you do you're known for staying very uber calm in high stress environments so is that real no okay <laughs> <laughs> it's an acquired facade okay. and it is important it really is important so how did you develop that how did you hone that skill because we all need that well trial and error um, I've learned so much from teaching, especially those first five years. If you wear your emotions like a badge, it's simply not a good thing. People, it, it, frankly, it, it, it's off-putting to people. And you, you want to always feel as though you're 
inviting conversations and facilitating them. And, and you don't want people to feel uncomfortable around you. And I, it became clear to me that when I'm angry and upset and I'm showing it and I'm loud, that it's just hugely off-putting and it, and it disserves me. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mindy, because when I was chairing the fashion program, I, I visited classes regularly and wanted to know what the faculty were doing and how the students were responding to them and, of course, what the students were doing. And whenever I passed by a classroom or, or studio and I heard yelling, I knew there was a big problem. And after class, I would send a note to the instructor just saying, come, come to my office, Let, we need to talk. What was that about? I went by, heard all this yelling, well, they hadn't finished their assignments again, and I'm so sick and tired of this. And I said, look, you never, ever, ever have to raise your voice. Why? They haven't been listening to me. Well, then I would suggest you're not using your power appropriately. What do you mean? You're holding all the power in your hand. I mean, there's no question about it. Well, why would you say that? I said, you're giving them a grade. You're holding all the power. So it's completely unnecessary to have a, what sounded like a quasi-hostile environment start to evolve from your frustrations. I, I would advise you leave the room and tell them that when you come back, you want this work completed, period. Get out of there, just go. But I also said, find a method that, that works for you. But this, I, I, I would, when we say from ex my own personal experience with this, the yelling does not help, and it just eats away at you. Mm -hmm. So don't do it. Well, it changes the culture of the classroom yeah, as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's, it's a culture of terror. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So speaking of teaching methodologies, can we talk about your TEACH model? Yes. Okay. Well, I love acronyms, for one. And when I was writing The Natty Professor, I thought, what can I do with TEACH? Because I wanted to organize the book somehow. So I thought, well, let's turn TEACH into an acronym. So truth-telling, we've, we've talked about it a good deal. I've learned a lot from Project Runway, a huge amount. And that huge amount, I mean, I really will get to truth-telling, but I'm gonna sidestep for a moment about the difference between teaching and being a mentor. And there is a difference. I have to be a fairly blunt instrument while still maintaining a, a, an air of diplomacy, which I, I hope I do, because I can't say, well, let's see where this project goes. I could do it with my students when we had a 15-week week semester, but let's see what happens next week, and then I can come in with my truth-telling. And I always explain, this is from my point of view, this is my perception, this comes from my experience, and you do what you choose to do. They're, they're your decisions to make, not mine. Just because you want to have as productive, I'll use that word rather than, than positive or amicable, a productive relationship that isn't inhibited in any way by words that were perceived to be snarky or condescending or belittling or dismissive. You want to be supportive or don't say it. Asking, we also alluded to, I pummel everyone with questions. Whenever I go up to a workstation on Project Runway, the first thing I ask is, what's happening? Tell me, tell me what's going on here. And then there, there are, there's a response, okay, how do you feel about it? 
And if I'm seeing something egregious, such as a hem that's doing the loop-de-loop, I'll gesture to it. Is this intentional? Is this what you want to do? What do you mean? Well, I'm talking about the fact that it's all asymmetrical here. What? Yeah, come stand where I am. Stand next to me. Is that what you intended? Oh, no, that's not what I intended at all. I said, okay, just saying this is what I'm seeing, and you're now seeing it also. I love that you give people the space to grow into who they want to become, um, but you don't take it personally if they don't accept that. Not even remotely. Because I think sometimes as leaders, we have, a, we have a, a, a tendency to take it personally. Like we didn't coach hard enough. We didn't mentor in the right way. We gave the wrong advice. At least, I do. I'm confessing. But it's, it's a beautiful thing, I think, when you say, I did as much as I can do, and they became who they intended to become. Well, people, have, people ask me with, with a good deal of frequency also about how do I feel when a designer goes home on runway. Do, do I feel it's that, that I had a role in that, that I, by, from the advice I gave during the, the critique, that this lost? And I said, I feel no more responsibility for a designer losing than I do for a designer winning. I don't, I don't celebrate, the, oh, look what I did, I helped them win. No, we have this intense conversation at a particular moment in the show when the work is developed enough to see where it can possibly go, but not so developed that it can't change. And then I step back. I hope for the best. Thank you, Tim. It's been so oh, fun to talk with you. Oh, it's been wonderful for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't it great? Thank you very much. Fun conversation. Make it work. <laughs> Make it work. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we break down big ideas into bite-sized pieces you can take with you and implement in your workplace culture. The first is that there's no growth without challenge. Listen up, leaders. You'll always be tempted to protect your team members on their path of professional development. Resist that temptation. Competition, complexity, difficulty, these aren't obstructions to growth. They're the building blocks of it. Instead of clearing the way, you should be pushing them, setting ambitious goals, and connecting them with the very experts they wish to become. As Tim Gunn says, you don't want to be at a school where you're the best student. The second is that even though mentors should challenge their mentees, they should always remain positive, never belittling, condescending, or even snarky. Again, Tim is just so quotable here. He says, you want to be supportive, or don't say it. Don't jump to criticism. Just ask questions. Why did you make this choice? What was your process in creating this? Not to put them on the spot, but to get them thinking and probing so that they're intentional about their work and their own development. The third is that Tim Gunn with a sword facing down children Kill Bill style absolutely has to be made into a movie poster. Or better yet, a movie. Preferably directed by Alejandro Inaritu, with cameos by Uma Thurman, Ben Stiller, and of course, Heidi Klum. What do you say, Tim? You in? I can't believe this. This is so incredibly thrilling and exciting. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and subscribe to The Workplace on Stitcher. It really helps us grow and get to know you better. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, 
the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. OC Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite where all employee experience apps are in sync, giving teams the integrated tools they need when, where, and how they need them. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com.